Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been a stunning week of developments in Ethiopia. We'll talk about the prime minister's resignation and the release of political prisoners. Film contributor Milos Stalik talks with famed cinematographer Ed Lockman. His latest project is Wonderstruck. And there's a new art exhibit from one of the central figures from the black arts movement. We'll find out about that on Weekend Passport. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF, has been in power in Ethiopia since 1991. They hold all the seats in Ethiopia's parliament. Now long-running protests from the Oromo ethnic group have forced the resignation of the prime minister, and the EPRDF has released some of the country's top political prisoners. And today, there was a state of emergency reimposed. There was one that ended in August, and there's a three-month one about to be declared by the government. Let's talk about what's happening in Ethiopia with Charles Schaefer. He's a professor of international studies at Valparaiso University. Thanks for joining us again, Chuck. This is uh, welcome to be here. Now, I'm amazed at all the things that have happened here. A month ago, we were talking about the potential release of political prisoners and questioning whether the the EPRDF would really follow through. And a lot's happening. Some of the most prominent people have been released. It's quite an eye-opening thing. It is indeed. You know, I think we spoke some time ago, and we were sort of left questioning whether this would indeed take place. Um, The numbers vary. I've seen as many as 2,000 political prisoners released. A more reliable number that I've heard repeated many times is around 740 or thereabouts. Certainly some prominent figures have been released. A couple of them as uh, yesterday, or actually the day before yesterday, in fact, um, Iskander Nega, who is a, a journalist who had been in prison for seven years, in fact, uh, he was released as sort of a, a way to assuage some of the demonstrations by the Oromo and the Amhara in Ethiopia. So it, it is rather stunning the efforts the uh, EPRDF has gone to comply with the, the statement that the prime minister made. Now, the prime minister decided to uh, resign himself, Halle Mariam Dessalines, and he uh, he wasn't seen as a strong prime minister, but uh, he said in the, when he resigned that he was doing it so that there could be reform and democracy. What does that sound like in the Ethiopian context? It, this took everybody by surprise. Um, I think many uh, country experts thought that this was around the corner, but we sort of estimated that it would be two, three, four months down the line. And then to have it sort of happen suddenly yesterday without any warning was quite a surprise. Um, I think what this indicates is that within the EPRDF, there are a lot of factions. And 
my uh, sort of judgment are that the the resolve of the factions are actually hardening, and some of the uh, group feel like they are backed against the wall and they're unwilling to compromise. And I presume that Hylomerium Dessaline just thought found his position untenable um, at this point. Now, when we were talking a month ago, we were discussing the person who is the head of the Oromo People's Democratic Organization, Lema Mergesa, and he has been adopting some of the rhetoric of the protest movement and saying that they are going to kind of incorporate the people's needs into the ruling party. Uh, Is this guy a player in becoming the next prime minister? I think he is. Um, Everything that I have been reading seems to indicate that if there is one name mentioned, it is Lema Mergesa, who is a relatively young Oromo, sort of groomed within the uh, puppet party of the EPRDF, the puppet party being the Oromo People's Democratic uh, Organization. And um, he actually sort of rose to power within their security branch. And so one would assume that he would be sort of hardline, but his rhetoric is really quite remarkable. He is articulating the, the desires of the Oromo people, which not paradoxically sort of align with those of other Oromo opposition groups, um, the Oromo Federal uh, Federalist Congress and the even the OLF, he's adopting some of those ideas because they resonate with the Oromo people. And um, even more remarkable is that his articulation of this new um, sort of direction for politics that he's uh, talking about is gaining a lot of favor with the Amhara National Democratic uh, Movement, which is also another puppet re- uh, party of the EPRDF. So, yes, he is emerging. Now, some people are speculating that, okay, if he was put in power, uh, again, will be only a placeholder. But I think um, those who have met him are sort of arguing that this this gentleman is really a smart, savvy politician and um, may, in fact, uh, you know, lead the country in a more inclusive manner that would begin to pay attention to the demands of the Oromo and the Amhara people, which constitute about, you know, 66 percent or thereabouts of the population. So he is uh, someone to be reckoned with. And there are elections that are going to come up in, what, a year or two in Ethiopia? And I don't know what an election would look like under these circumstances. But the last election, the EPRDF got all the seats in parliament, as I mentioned at the top, and they control the entire political discourse, the media, everything. I imagine they would have to change this before the next election. Yes, indeed. Um, In fact, the next elections are scheduled for 2020, there'll be five years. But with this big, huge shakeup of all of the puppet parties, and in fact, the the umbrella party itself, there might be some snap elections called earlier, who knows. Um, I think right now, since it is a parliamentary uh, government, that the parliament would be able to 
put in place someone um, to to act as prime minister. This took place in 2012 when uh, Meles Zenawi, the acting prime minister, passed away, and uh, Haile Meriam Dessalin was put into into power. So, in fact, it, we may not have elections, but um, who knows? It could be. But again, everything is is up in the air. It's it's a, a big question mark. We're talking about what's happening in Ethiopia with Chuck Schaefer from Valparaiso University. The prime minister resigned this week. They've been releasing some of the top political prisoners in the country. They did slap on a state of emergency today, just uh, hours ago, and... There was one that was uh, over just last August. What is what difference does a state of emergency make in Ethiopia? Well, um, I'm I'm glad you asked. Um, a report I heard from someone who is uh, living in Ethiopia is that yesterday afternoon, after this surprise, um, there was relative peace in in the streets of Ethiopia or Addis Ababa. Uh, no protests of, uh, of any sort of um, numbers. Um, people tended to go to leave work a little early and go to shore, uh, stores to stock up on um, produce and various other perishables, and then went home. And there was relative quiet all last night. So the, the declaration of a state of emergency, I think, is a precautionary um, step by the government to say, oh, this is a real delicate situation, and it may engender all sorts of protests and riots and so forth. Um, they have experience doing this. Uh, last uh, October, in October 2016, through August 4th of 2017, there was a state of emergency. What that did was it restricted um, the Internet, uh, Facebook and, and the like, the uh, social media, um, and uh, basically allowed the government to impose a, um, a moratorium on gatherings of any sort in the city. There was a quasi-curfew. So again, I think what they're doing is taking these precautions to say, okay, we're going to at least maintain stability on the streets until we resolve the politics um, at, at the top level. So it still feels like a very controlling environment if you're going to control all the media and you're going to release the political prisoners. And I noticed that Iskinder Nega, uh, who people have been talking about, you know, since 2011, and <laughs> I, I've done segments on him in 2013, and he was going to be released from prison, and they wanted him to sign a thing that he was guilty of being a part of a terrorist organization, uh, Jinbat 7, and he wouldn't do it. And they, they sent him back to his cell, and they thought about it for a couple more days and released him. The, 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 the apparatus is still controlling. Oh, definitely. And the Tigrinians, the Tigrinian People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, who dominate the EPRDF, control the whole security. They control the military and all the federal police. So it is realistic to assume that they are going to maintain some control, a lot of control over the Ethiopian people. I think what is, is absolutely significant to those looking at Ethiopia is just how much anger there is in the population and how widespread this is and therefore how the what we thought were these 
sort of oppressive uh, structures of government are just seems to be crumbling. Now, the big factor, as you pointed out, is the military and the police, and, and they haven't really showed their hand yet. But they are controlled by the Tigrinians, and um, if they do, it's a whole nother story. But the trend right now seems to be going in the direction of a much more inclusive uh, government, there's all sorts of talks that they have to allow the opposition to enter into dialogue. Part of the rationale for a uh, releasing a lot of these opposition leaders was to allow them to begin to circulate and to begin to engage in the conversation about what to do with Ethiopia in the future. If you're the United States, what does this mean to you? Your main priority seems to be counterterrorism in the Horn of Africa. This is your partner. The U.S. likes stability, and even though the U.S. ambassador has been in Ethiopia saying things, well, you've got to allow political participation, you can't shoot people in the streets, he's been saying a lot of good things. How wide open do you want to see this country crack open? Yeah, that's the um, uh, very good question. I mean, what is remarkable is how silent Washington has been for all sorts of reasons. As you pointed out, the war on terrorism being the number one. But just a couple days ago, there is a resolution in the House uh, sponsored by uh, Christopher Smith from New Jersey. It's called Resolution House Resolution 128, um, supporting respect for human rights and encouraging inclusive governance in Ethiopia. They tried to put this through in 2017. The Ethiopian government came back and said, you know, if you go that direction, we're going to decline supporting your war on terrorism. We backed off. What is remarkable is that just recently, a couple days ago, in fact, there's sort of a threat to bring this back to the floor at the end of February. And essentially what they're asking is they're asking Ethiopia to allow the United Nations to send in sort of a human rights investigatory group into Ethiopia to look at these human rights allegations in, in the country. I think what this is articulating is that the ambassador and the Congress seem to sort of be on the same page. They're looking at Ethiopia and they're saying, oh, this political situation is really, really fragile. Um, there's great possibility that it might break open. What can we do in the short term with potential long-term ramifications that could quell um, this unrest? And I think one of them is that we're banking on is that somehow the whole apparatus, the government apparatus opens up and more people are, are included in this uh, federation. If it is uh, a federation, which in terms of its constitution, it's it's supposed to be, then really there has to be a divestment of power to all the different ethnic groups. So we're making some efforts, but I think we're also hedging our bets. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, in Ethiopia in the coming days. We'll keep an eye on it with Chuck Schaefer, professor of international studies at Valparaiso University. Thanks for joining us and sorting out what's been happening. It's been a pleasure.
Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and he'll talk with one of this country's top cinematographers, Ed Lockman. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Our film contributor Milos Stalik interviews some of the world's great filmmakers on Worldview. Today's masterclass is with famed cinematographer and director Ed Lockman. Lockman's work with directors like Werner Herzog, Robert Altman, and Sofia Coppola. His latest collaboration is once again with director Todd Haynes on his film Wonderstruck, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Here's Milos Stalik with filmmaker Ed Lockman. So, Ed, your most recent film that's in release is Wonderstruck, which you did with director Todd Haynes. Not the first time, obviously, that you work with Todd Haynes. And I think it's interesting in the kinds of decisions that you and Todd made visually, because it is a very visual film, before you made it. For example, the decision, there are two parallel stories, one of which is in color and black and white. So what kind of process did you use to determine the visual look of the film? Yeah, well, Todd immerses himself with all the department heads, with the visual style, but more importantly, he creates kind of a lookbook and then asks us to also contribute to it. And it kind of illustrates his ideas, but it really includes kind of the politics, the history, the demographics, the art, the fashion, the cinematic language of the time period. And in this way, I think he becomes very specific about finding details that immerse the viewer in the story. And I've worked with him in the 20s, obviously with Wonderstruck, and in the 30s and 40s with Mildred Pierce. In the 50s, the early 50s was Carol. The late 50s was All That Heaven Allows. Far from Heaven, All That Heaven was a reference. (laughs) And the Dylan film, I'm Not There, the 60s and the 70s. So the audience doesn't have to understand what our research is, but I think he creates a presence for the viewer that they feel things are happening in front of their eyes in that time period that gives it a certain immediacy that I think captures the world of the characters that we're depicting. And how do you then, as a cinematographer, translate this? Well, to me, images are all about visual metaphor. And so I'm always looking for the visual metaphor with Todd to tell the story. So to be more specific, in Wonderstruck, Brian Selznick, who wrote this young adult children's book, he's an illustrator and a writer. So to situate the young girl who's deaf, he used uh, black and white drawings because it took place during the 20s. She had a mother that was a silent movie actress. And that's part of the storyline of her search for her mother. And so it's all done in black and white like a silent film. And then the 70s 
Todd's conceit or idea was we would mirror his world in the world of Manhattan, New York City, and also Minnesota, but more important, reference the cinematic language of the 70s that came out of New York, which New York at that time was going through a recession like most of the country, and there was a certain hardship to the imagery. And so we looked at films like Mean Streets, Midnight Cowboy, and French Connection was probably the most important one for me. So we depicted that kind of cinematic language, which was much more raw, more documented, versus the 20s, which was a much more orchestrated, balanced, carefully framed. The movement had a certain fluidity to it. But both stories are mirrored in losing the objective world of hearing. The young boy that we meet was someone that could hear, but lost his hearing versus the young girl, Rose, whose whole world is mirrored in death. So it seems to me, Ed, that Wonderstruck has a lot of elusive qualities. It's a film about the imagination, enchantment, wonder, grief is also a driving force in the film. How do you represent these kinds of qualities visually? Well... Look, it's really a children's story about finding your place in the world and kind of it's an exploration of your identity and how you use imagination to survive and where you belong. And so I think it reaches the child in all of us. And so Todd used a lot of devices. We like to think of it like it was handmade, like what children do with their hands. It honors their imagination, what you do with your hands. And so you, there's these miniatures, there's a large part of the story comes together in the Museum of Natural History at the Diorama. You know, at the end of the film, we see the Queen's map of New York City that was built in 1964 for the World's Fair. So all these elements give a texture. And I think they like the idea that Rose makes a map or makes these little dioramas herself out of newspaper and the collecting of Ben in his room with like, you know, rocks and dinosaurs and toy cars. And all these things are kind of what we do in our collective memory of holding on to what we've lost or what we're holding on to. So I think all those things give this feeling of you're entering this child's world. Without digital special effects, everything was done in camera. And is that important to you? Because doing things in camera, which obviously comes from silent film, right? Where everything was done in camera. Yeah, we shot it on film. We didn't shoot it digitally because we were referencing this cinematic language of the times. And so I think it's something that we're losing. You know, I see my 11-year-old daughter playing with digital games all the time on her telephone rather than going out to play, let's say. So I think that's what the film deals with also, the need to feel the tactile, the things around us that make us get in the dirt to uh, enjoy life. And how does film do that that digital doesn't? And what are we losing when we lose film? For me, film has a different look. It has a different depth. The color separation is different in film than digital. You know, it's a subliminal feeling. But 
I think the pendulum is swinging back, and a lot of the A directors in Hollywood are now back to shooting in film. Scorsese has always stayed in film. Uh, Nolan, uh, you know, a number of directors are still trying to hold on, and I think there's a resurgence. There's also a different methodology of how you approach a story in film, you know, that things have to be very planned out, and it's not like you're shooting everything and hoping in the editing room you're going to, like, construct the story. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't wonderful digital films. I just don't think we should give up the language of film for one form of storytelling, you know, with images. To me, I like to look at it this way. To me, digital world seems like, if I compare it to painting, like the photorealistic world. And for me, film feels more impressionistic. You know, it's the grain structure. There's, not to get too technical, but there's an RGB, red, green, blue. And to me, it's like an etching. The light etches into the negative of the film because these different colors aren't at one film plane. And that gives a certain depth to the image and a certain distance to what you're looking at. It's not like I'm looking out the window at something. So you look, the digital world is still trying to figure out ways of creating looks that are filmic. But then I just say, shoot it on film, you know, and use the digital world for what it's wonderful for. I love it in documentary. It's so unobtrusive. And there's some spectacular digital films. But for me, and I look at a film, the color depth and the separation looks different for me than when I look at a digital film. You're listening to Wolf Yamilo Stelic speaking with cinematographer Ed Luckman, whose most recent film is Wonderstruck, which he made with Todd Haynes. You know, it seems to me that what you're talking about requires two different things, because obviously what you're doing on the one hand is very logistical, very technical. You made some examples of all of these RGB, whatever. So all of these technical things are obviously part of your training in your head. And at the same time, a cinematographer, especially like you, has a very artistic sense. You've studied art history, and I know that you watch a lot of films, which may not be true of all cinematographers. So in a way, that role is kind of expanded and larger. How do you combine these two? Well, I mean, you know, I think we're all affected by our experience, you know, and I'm always affected by what I'm looking at, you know, and it isn't just films, it's in museums. I think you're imposing uh, images, a certain subjectivity of your own experience and how you relate to images. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do with a director. I like to look at it this way. You know, in a book, you can enter the interior world of the character, but it's much harder to show place where you are. Where in film, it's just the opposite. In one shot, you can show place where you are but it's much harder to enter the interior world of the character. So I'm trying to enter the interior world of the character with images. For me, images are about the emotion in the storytelling that are like a, a subliminal way of expressing what these characters are feeling. So I'm trying to find the visual metaphors that will tell that story emotionally. 
I want to give you a test because you worked with a lot of really great filmmakers, and there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to go through all of them because we would be here all day. But I want to ask you for a one-sentence description of your experience with the filmmakers that you've worked with, starting with Werner Herzog. Wow. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Werner Herzog. You made La Souffrière courageous. courageous, okay. And your experience was, one sentence? Daunting, you know. I went on a volcano with Werner Herzog that he told me was going to erupt. <laughs> and I was so young, I said, what film stock are we going to use when I left from New York? When I got there, I asked him what would happen if it had erupted. And he looked at me and said, we'll be skyborne. So, uh, you know... Faith. I would say there's a great faith when you work with Werner, you know, because he would never put you in harm's way that he would put himself, but of course he puts himself in harm's way. Okay, Vim Vendors. You made Tokyo Ga, among other things. Yeah. Vim is an imagist. He's like a library of images. He's always been wonderful to work with because you're always collecting images. And then he designs the story through the images. I think the images are the most important part for him. You know, I can give you an example. Like if a train is in, he would set up dialogue in the foreground with two actors. But of course, we didn't have the budget to control background action. But we had a timetable with a train. So we knew a train would come through the background at a certain moment. And then the actors would perform in that moment, so we have the action of the train in the background. So he's always searching for images to tell his story. Uh, Sofia Coppola, you did Virgin Suicides with her when she was young, obviously. Yeah, you know, starting yeah. Out. Uh, on Virgin Suicide. She's a gentle soul, and she knows her story from the script. You know, she rewrote an adaption from the book. And she was a real collaborator. She uh, allows everybody, makes everybody feel uh, that they can contribute to her her work. Robert Altman, you shot his last film, Prairie Home Companion. Yeah, he used for me like a jazz musician, you know, or a composer in the sense that he sets up two or three cameras, knowing the cameras might see each other in the middle of the shot and lets it happen. You know, he wants this improvisation in the storytelling. He always says he wants the viewer to feel the sense of discovery. And he loved jazz. And so I always felt his images came out of a sensibility of his love for jazz. And I felt like I was just one of the musicians, you know, uh, improvisation in creating the images. Uh He would always say just before the take, let's boogie. (laughs) <laughs> Ulrich Seidel, you know, Austrian filmmaker. You did Import-Export with him, Paradise Hope. Ulrich questioned a lot about he mixes reality and fiction in ways that are troubling to people sometimes because they can't make the distinction between what's real and what's not because he finds a story and then or he writes a very open idea for a story. Then he goes out and tries to find the real people that are that story. And I say he's very moral without being moralistic. I have the greatest respect. I think he's one of the most interesting European directors working today. 
I love the way he mixes reality and fiction. You know, he studied actually to be a priest, so he, I find uh, kind of a an experience that seems very uh, sacrimonial, you know. He's always kind of, I think, looking at the outsider in the society. And you co-directed uh, with Larry Clark, I think, one of the most important and interesting American films about teenagers and their relationships to adults, uh, Ken Park. Well, Larry, you know, I, the two photographers I became interested in images was Robert Frank and Larry Clark. And I think the thing about both of those photographers were that they imbued in the image something very personal about their own lives. And to me, images either you try to find the authenticity through uh, the poetics of what they're feeling, you know, and Larry's two books, Teenage Lust and Tulsa, were very seminal, very important at the time because they revealed his youth growing up and he was involved in drugs and uh, sex and rock and roll. And his mother was a baby photographer. And he would go out after helping his mother with a camera and document or photograph himself and his friends. And it was such a personal kind of expose of the subculture in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that his filmmaking is similar. When I met him in Graz, Austria at an art fair, I said, have you ever thought about making a film? Because your books are like a film, you know, from page to page. And he said, no, man, how do you make a film? And I said, oh, let's hang out. And out of that came his diaries. And we brought it up to date through this, like, skate park, and we met Harmony Corrin, and he wrote the script for it. So he's a real documentarian, and I think all his films reach out to tell stories that way. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic. I've been speaking with cinematographer Ed Lachman, whose most recent film is Wonderstruck. Thank you very much, Ed. Oh, thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to have more art and weekend passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. And we'll talk about one of the central figures from the black arts movement. There's a new art exhibit from her, and we'll find out about that after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here, one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, to let you know where to go this weekend. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. We've got a couple of musical events first. Where are we going? Yeah, we're first going to Israel, and this is uh, Idan Reichal, uh, or Idan Reichal, as they say in Israel. Uh, he is doing a concert of piano songs. He's an Israeli artist who has a reputation for uh, 
being one of the first artists in Israel to include the music of the Ethiopians uh, and the Ethiopian Jews who were migrating into Israel. And he's also been incorporating a lot of music from the Arab countries. Uh, Some people call him the one-man peace band or whatever they call him. But he's a pianist, he's a composer, and he will be performing uh, this weekend, Sunday, February 18th, 7 p.m. at the Athenaeum Theater Main Stage, 2936 North Southport Avenue. All right, that's the Idan Rachel Project. And exactly, great an- job. Another musical effort. Uh, where are we going this time? Uh, we're going to Ireland, uh, or Ireland is coming to us, I should say. Kevin Burke, who is an Irish uh, fiddle player and uh, supposedly a master of all uh, classical uh, fiddle, uh, Irish fiddle, he's performing over at the Irish American Heritage Center, uh, located in Irving Park. 4626 North Knox Avenue. Check him out, too. It will be a really a fun evening tonight over there performing. Everybody should go to the Irish American Heritage Center once if you haven't been there. It's an old school building that's been repurposed to uh, a heritage center. It's a fabulous place, and we have had several artists who performed there on, on our segment before. Uh, tonight would be a good good time to go over there and check it out again. All right, on to our feature thing, and it is an art exhibit or two at the DePaul Art Museum. Absolutely, and uh, what we're doing is the, the, the DePaul Art Museum is having a an exhibition of the uh, uh, it's 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 a, one part of a series of exhibitions that's being performed by the uh, 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 that's being sponsored by the Terra Foundation. I, I understand, and we are uh, we're and the artist that we're covering is. Uh, Barbara Jones Hogu. Exactly. I'm trying to. <laughs> the, the, the name escaped me for, for one second. And uh, this is uh, uh, an exhibition that will be going on for, uh, for about at least another four weeks or so, right? Absolutely. March yeah. 25th. Uh, and Julie Widholm Rodriguez is here, the director and chief curator of the DePaul Art Museum. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, tell us, first of all, about this effort to raise the profile of some Chicago artists out there that uh, we didn't necessarily know about. Sure. So DePaul Art Museum is focused on creating a dialogue between local artists and global artists. Um, we are participating in the Terra Foundation's year-long initiative called Art Design Chicago, and they have sponsored several several exhibitions, publications, convenings, programs, um, to really unearth untold stories about art and design in Chicago predating 1980. So we're looking mostly at historical exhibitions. Um, we are presenting the work of Barbara Jones Hogu. It's her first solo museum exhibition ever. Um, sadly, she passed away in November at age 79. Um, she was one of the Afro-Cobra artists from the south side of Chicago, a very important group as part of the black arts movement. Explain a little about Afro-Cobra and the black arts movement. And because the I think if people saw the art, and you can go online and see it at the DePaul Art Museum and and other places, uh, it's super psychedelic and uh, funky, black power, (laughs) and uh, it's super fun. Yes. So the um, the exhibition that we've organized is comprised of Barbara's screen prints, primarily from 1967 to 1974. So they very much reflect the era uh, in terms of fashion and color and graphic design, but also reflect the politics. So she and several artists from the south side of Chicago uh, were involved with the Wall of Respect, 
uh, which was a mural um, erected on the South Side in 1967 that was to honor several black cultural icons. Um, and she was an artist who helped paint the uh, images of theater actors um, on the wall of respect. So when we were thinking about the anniversary of this important mural, that became very important to a global mural movement and community arts movement in general. Um, we decided to focus on Barbara's work primarily because it had never been seen before in the Solo Museum exhibition, but also for its graphic, colorful quality that was um, kind of attracting viewers into an art experience that was very political and directed at a black community. And that was the whole point of the Afro-Cobra movement, wasn't it? That I went and saw the exhibit, and it was really interesting. You've got some nice films that go with it uh, with her and her colleagues in the Afro-Cobra movement talking about color, 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 and the, the kind of psychedelic thing they had going, and they, they, all, their, all their stuff looks great. Well, they, you know, um, some of the early work in the exhibition by Barbara was very critical of uh, racism in this country, and as a movement, the Artists in Afro-Cobra, which stands for the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists, nice. um, <laughs> they decided that they wanted to create black art for a black community um, and a black, na- a black cultural nation that was fo- that was located on the south side of Chicago, but really speaking to a global black diaspora. But a key tenet of their of their undertaking was that they wanted to create images of uplift, of unity, of positivity, to contradict the media representations of negative, um, the, the negative stereotypes of a black community. And that's exactly what all the color and fun does. It, mm-hmm. it, it looks great. And uh, this idea of black nationalism still resonates today. It's it's in the Black Panther movie, apparently. <laughs> right, which I'm going to see on Sunday. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that, that's the irony of all of this is that, you know, the black nationalist movement is considered to be a nationalist movement, yet there is a dimension of cosmopolitanism to it, that it's trying to relate to a global uh, black movement. And uh, how, do, how is that reconciled? Well, I you know, I think... Um, there is a community of artists that is right. global and, and creative um, actors and agents who want to change the world and change society for the better through their art. Um, Barbara Jones Hogan was definitely an artist and a very right. skilled artist at that. She was a right. master printmaker. Um, so I think there, there's a way to negotiate the political and the artistic in a way that's very meaningful. And for, for DePaul Art Museum, this work from the 1960s is presented in 2018 because the themes and subject matters continue to, rel- to, to resonate with our society today. You know, at a time of division and Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, you know, th- speaking out and speaking um, truth to power is something that's, that's very important today. You've got a couple of events coming up uh, this weekend, the Politics of Print panel discussion and uh, and a mobile street art cart. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about what's going on particularly this weekend. Sure. So we, um, two of our exhibitions, including Barbara Jones Hogu and another one, um, Jose Guerrero Presente, include this, Jose Guerrero Presente includes a memorial print portfolio to Jose Guerrero, who was an important muralist who passed away in 2015. And he was from Pilsen. From the Pilsen area. So we have about 25 artists who've made various kinds of of prints um, in his honor, and they reflect themes of immigration, of labor movement, of community. And so our panel discussion this weekend is with William Estrada, who's a wonderful artist and educator, and Nicole Marroquin, who's one of the artists in the portfolio, and um, trying to think about printmaking as a form of activism, 
um, because Barbara Jones Hogu's work does that, and Jose Guerrero was very much a community activist as well. Um, so trying to tease out different ways that art can be a, 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 a form of social change. And then immediately after the panel discussion, William Estrada will be um, working on his mobile art cart, which is a kind of demonstration of prints that he makes, and the public can kind of help him make them. Um, and they're political messages, and it's something that he's been taking all over the city in different sites. It's cool that both these artists deliberately went to printmaking to get the word out. It, it's a form that gets the word out, and it is, uh, it's not like making an oil painting or something that's uh, super labor-intensive. You can make a lot of them. They can be uh, fun and pretty and talk about things. And, and it's ha- accessible and, yeah. for people. It's easy to distribute. It's yeah. easy to distribute. Um, the Afrocobra artists intentionally made prints in editions of 100 and would sell them for 10 to $15. You know, they wanted people to, in their community to be able to afford fine art, original prints. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's something to that. In the in an era where we have, you know, Leonardo da Vinci being sold for $450 million right. and the art market is kind of insane right now, to embrace printmaking as a form that is maybe more democratic or accessible. Definitely. Now, and also, the, the, it seems to me that, again, the aesthetics and the color schemes and all of these, they, they really were globally inspired, they seem to be. You know, uh, when I look at Barbara, uh, Barbara uh, Hogu, and it's, some of it strikes me of Brazil more than mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Some of it, uh, uh, colors of West Africa come through to me from the times that I've spent over there. And it seems like they were in touch with, uh, with sources of inspiration that we may not be even be thinking about right now. Absolutely. Uh, Barbara has a print called Relate to Your Heritage. Right. And specifically looking at African sculptures, um, the colors and textiles of West Africa uh, are definitely found within her artwork. Yeah. You know, I wanted to talk for a second about murals. It seems like murals are an important way that uh, communities express themselves. And now Barbara Jones Hogu and her collaborators on the mural that they did – uh, they all got kind of surveilled for it. Is that true? And it was, That's it was true. Like they were trouble. put on an FBI watch list um, because of their participation mm. in the Wall of Respect. Oh, wow. Well, you know, mm. they were organizing. They were organizing. They were a community that was um, kind of uh, interested in self-determination and um, creating a community. And therefore, they became suspicious to our government. Wow. So, so, but it's um, also uh, a, a point of expression. You're, you're expressing yourself in your community, and you're getting in trouble mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think during the civil rights era, that's very indicative of what activism, what happened, you know, to activist artists, to activists in general, that you were kind of considered a threat to the status quo. Well, we had a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, we had uh, an, uh, another, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Another guest of our segment was talking about COINTELPRO, which FBI was doing, was actually trying trying to uh, eliminate the possibility of a rise of a, another black messiah, a black messiah that could unify the black community around each other. Uh, you know, I think her name is uh, Lynn Johnson, I think was uh, the lawyer who was here at the West Side Community Justice Center. And uh, this is uh, sim- visual arts can be very powerful in inspiring people to embrace another Messiah <laughs> coming in. So I would say, you know, it would not be surprising to me that FBI would be monitoring artists like that. Mm-hmm. So. I, I think it's important also to mention that Barbara Jones Hogu is now featured on a mural that is honoring um, women in Chicago done by Carrie James Marshall. 
which is on the side of the cultural cultural center. center. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a beautiful full circle moment where in 67 she was painting black cultural heroes and Mm -hmm. sheroes, and now she has become one herself. And certainly, um, Jose Guerrero, uh, he was somebody who was doing mur- doing mural tours in Pilsen and uh, running people out to, to see what was going on and, and check out their identity. Absolutely. It, it was also another source of act- activism. And it's uh, this legacy of Latino and African-American mural artists in Chicago has actually been transported to other parts of the world in Eastern Europe as they were. The Berlin Wall was breaking down and all that. In Poland, places like that, they were taking American artists to do murals over there. That was amazing. Well, I hope a lot of people get out to the DePaul Art Museum and check out the exhibits and the politics of print panel discussion uh, tomorrow at noon with the mobile art cart, uh, street art cart, right afterwards. And it's been great to meet you, Julie Widholm Rodriguez, director and chief curator of the DePaul Art Museum. Um, Great exhibit. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, great to see you, Nari Safavi, and we'll check you out again next weekend for another edition of Weekend Passport. It was a privilege to be here. This morning, federal prosecutors indicted 13 Russian nationals and three Russian entities for an elaborate plot to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The indictment was brought by Robert Mueller, and we are going to have more on this on Monday on Worldview. And, of course, stay tuned to WBEZ throughout the day, here and now. All things considered, we'll have more on this as well. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance, Mike Gilmore for engineering, and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.